Welcome to Talking About Regeneration, the podcast that's all about stem cell and regenerative medicine and some other stuff too. I'm Kevin McCormack, Communications Director at CERM. We're California's stem cell agency and we have five and a half billion dollars to change the world. And this podcast will introduce you to some of the people who are going to help us do just that. Enjoy the show. Our guests today are two women who have played key roles in helping make CERM a role model for other funding agencies and also for helping ensure we got the funding we need to stay in business. Maria Bonneville is the Vice President for Public Outreach and Board Governance at CERM, which means she oversees all our communications and makes sure the board runs smoothly. More importantly, she's my boss. So if you detect any on-air groveling from me today, you'll know why. And Melissa King is the Executive Director of Americans for Cures. She's also a passionate advocate for patients with chronic illness and disease. Melissa played important roles in both the 2004 campaign for California's Proposition 71 that created the Stem Cell Agency, and an equally important role in getting voters to approve Proposition 14 last November that refunded us. Ladies, welcome to Talking About Regeneration. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here. It's delightful to see you, even if no one else can. Um, (laughs) Melissa, uh, let's start with you. I mean, the campaign for Prop 14 um, looked to be on fairly solid ground. And then all of a sudden we had a pandemic. Um, How hard was it to try and get keep that momentum going to collect signatures when no one was able to go outside? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We felt very good about uh, the campaign um, earlier in 2020. And we were on track to qualify with enough signatures um, for the ballot by probably mid to late March or maybe April. That's what we were on track to do with both our our wonderful volunteers that were out gathering signatures for us and also the professional signature gathering firm that was able to have people out around the state gathering signatures. But when we were suddenly, like everybody else, faced with the covid uh, pandemic and all of the uncertainty with the one certainty that it was very dangerous for almost anybody to be out in public in, in large numbers and certainly for immune compromised people to be out in public spaces. Um, and of course, among our volunteers, we had some immune compromised people. It became a huge challenge to gather the signatures that we needed to qualify. And in fact, we ended up not qualifying until late June. The day before our deadline um, was was when we finally gathered enough signatures for the ballot. And then either, even after that, because of COVID, had some further challenges um, related to the fact that people were not in their offices and that the signatures counted by county had to be Uh, reviewed and tallied by county employees around California. And those people weren't in their offices or in as large a number as normal. Plus, there were question marks at at that stage, as both of you may remember, about touching paper that other people have touched. These were the days when we were like, should we mail anything? Should I touch my mail? 
And so there were a lot of um, uncertainties that led us to to feel like we were going to have trouble qualifying, but luckily we did. So once you got on the ballot, what were the challenges then of running a campaign when, again, you really have to do everything at a great distance? Sure. And, and another great question. Um, normally in a campaign, and I know Maria knows this as well, especially a citizen-driven campaign like this particular ballot initiative, you want and need to be out among people, speaking to them at events that already exist. And in our case, for example, I had an entire plan uh, running field operations for the campaign to have us, meaning me, others on my team, and then also volunteers out at events around the state that were patient advocacy organization-driven events, like various walks and runs on behalf of a particular disease, and suddenly all of those events were canceled. So I had a plan for us to be at 40 to 50 events between, let's say, February and November, early November, when the election took place, and suddenly we had zero that we could be at. And those events would have been an opportunity during signature gathering to gather signatures, so those were gone. And then also to be out there talking to people about the initiative and answering questions and making sure that people were aware of it in in such an interesting year uh, as, as 2020 ended up being. Uh, Maria, so if we can come to you now, as Melissa said, um, you used to be involved in lots of political campaigns. I mean, that was your career before you joined CERM. So how tough was it for you to have to sit on the sidelines, not to be able to do anything during an election that really kind of held your future? Uh, the, camp the campaign team was amazing. So I had total confidence that um, they were doing everything they could to make sure that CERM continued um, to be able to fulfill its mission. It was really hard. I was jealous. Um, <laughs> there's nothing like a campaign. There's an adrenaline that comes with it. And, um, and I was missing out on all of that. But, um, but I knew the campaign team was, was just top notch. <laughs> but I remember, I mean, you spent most of your time telling us what we could or couldn't say. <laughs> I mean, is, we all, we all, there's all this urge to kind of support <laughs> it in some way. And you were saying, uh-uh. Uh-uh, can't do it. Now, as you know, we just we can't uh, we can't engage in campaigning on on uh, state time and and as a state um, employee. So yes, that was my role. So it's a little ironic that I was telling everyone what they couldn't do, even though in my head I was like, oh gosh, I would love to be doing that all over again. So it was hard. You were tempted just to put on a fake mustache and go out. And just... <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. Uh, you look good. So I, I would have thought the year before the election, I put our odds of, of getting approved about 60-40. But as things progressed, as we went through not just the pandemic, but a really contentious election year, um, I thought of going down to maybe 40-60 or 30-70 even. I mean, how did you feel about that? I was definitely anxious, um, especially um, I have close friends who... They completely understand the value of CIRM and how important it is um, to continue that sort of funding. And they would say things to me like, maybe it's not the right time to do this. So I know that the pandemic definitely left people questioning how the state should spend money, even if it was for scientific research. So there were definitely moments where um, where I wondered, like, is is are we gonna are we gonna exist? Are we gonna be able to continue to do the good work that we're doing? Um, so it was uh, there were definitely some moments where um, I wasn't quite sure. So, Melissa, did you have those moments where you thought, oh, no, this is going down in flames? 
Oh, yes, uh, a number of them, <laughs> including, <laughs> including, like I said, when we suddenly were faced with racing to qualify for the ballot by our deadline when, you know, just a few months earlier, we thought we were going to sail into qualification and then be able to shift right away, away from that and into the communications required to get a ballot initiative passed. Um, and, and then uh, because of what Maria just brought up, uh, which is that because of the pandemic, a lot of people were questioning whether or not this was the right way. It was, it was yet another potential reason to question whether or not it was the right time to pass this initiative. We had other questions about it as well, and we were prepared to answer those. But then this question came up, um, and, and luckily it fits into the whole reason that we do these initiatives, so Prop 71 in, in 2004 and then Prop 14 as bond initiatives with paid for with bond funding. Because when you're talking about something like a pandemic, it's in the same bucket as healthcare for Californians today and every day, whether it's for seniors or children or people that have socioeconomic challenges, the state should be helping with that health care and just generally providing a better health care experience and environment for everybody, right? The funding for that should not compete with research funding, and research funding should not compete with it. So research funding like CIRMS should not come out of the budgeting process that happens every year in the state capital. It should be funded through a different mechanism so it doesn't shift with the times in the way that other uh, elements of the budget do. But yes, um, in addition to the ballot qualification, then later, uh, and I mentioned this before too, we were not sure if our um, ballot qualification signatures would be tallied in time. There was a deadline for that as well. And even though that deadline was really on the county officials and the county staff members, we found ourselves trying to find ways to get in touch with people in every county in California to make sure that they got their counts in on time. And then, of course, as we all know, even when Election Day hit, given all of the different challenges, including the pandemic and then what what made people feel uncertain about the economy because of that it's a tough thing to get something like this passed a ballot initiative with a dollar sign attached to it when when there are economic questions and like i said it shouldn't compete with the regular budgeting process items but at the same time it's hard to convince people to spend money taxpayers money in a in an uncertain economic time so then we get to election day and it's a very close election, and we didn't actually know until 10 days later whether or not we had won. Our particular election was not called for 10 days. So not only were there points of uncertainty throughout the year, throughout 2020, but there was uncertainty on election night and for 10 more days. Oh, I know. I and, used to have jet yeah. black hair and then it went white <laughs> overnight. Um, but even with, say, the virus and the economy, um, it was a pretty contentious election year, to say the least. I mean, was it hard trying to get any kind of traction in the media um, when, yeah. when everyone was focused on the national election and very little on the local? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, what you just said is exactly right. Everything was focused either on the national election or just on COVID. 
and what we should all be doing to take care of ourselves and when there was going to be a vaccine and the fights between Donald Trump and pretty much everybody else. Um, so, you know, that was out there sucking the air out of uh, every conversation. Um, but also, um, it's just something that not as many people are likely to read or or think about in the first place, the ballot initiatives, especially when there are so many of them. And there were quite a few and they're very detailed. And so people tend to, instead of wanting to um, sort through a lot of detailed information, just be told by their organization, you know, whatever that organization is. And in some cases that's good. And in some cases, maybe not, but which way to vote on them. So it's very difficult, yes, to get in front of the general public with the information. And that's why, and as Maria knows very well, you actually have to make sure that you're getting in front of lots of different organizations, political organizations on both sides of the aisle, um, and, and all sorts of other types of organizations. And in some cases, patient advocacy organizations will do this and other nonprofits that come out with their um, their punch card of, of what to vote for. And that makes it easier for voters, but harder for us to get our messages out there to people, especially when an organization decides to say no for us this year, not because they're against the research, not because they don't think CIRM is wonderful and that the scientists funded by CIRM are doing amazing things, but because they question the economics of it. And then they say no, and then everybody in the organization hears that they say no and doesn't read the the few articles that are out there with the details. So yeah, it, it becomes a, a big challenge. Right. Um, Maria, uh, as we got closer to November and the results look very close, how many jobs did you apply for? <laughs> I, I, I went for 10. <laughs> you know, I didn't. Maybe that was, uh, that's, as we've seen the outcome, that's a good thing. But um, at the time, maybe it was foolish. But I made the decision that I was going to stick out because I believe in the mission. And it was almost easier to put a stake in the ground in that way and say, I've made my decision. Now let's focus on the task at hand. And in a lot of ways, COVID helped us uh, focus because we did sort of pivot and were able to allocate funding um, for COVID research and try and help in the effort. Um, I did dust off my resume, I won't lie, but I kept my <laughs> fingers crossed that I wouldn't need to use it. Me too. Actually, I was really impressed by how many people stuck around. I mean, there were only a couple of people who left the agency during that time when you would think that an awful lot of people would be kind of heading for the light. But they stuck Agreed. around. But for you as a member of the leadership team, how difficult was it to be have two plans going simultaneously? One, preparing to unwind the agency, close it down, essentially, <clears throat> and two, start planning for a, a future that none of us knew would actually come. You know, it's a tough exercise, and uh, both activities sort of have to live in separate parts of your brain, because um, you go from a meeting where you were talking about strategic planning and programs that would address equitable access um, to a meeting about core functions and to-dos uh, for a responsible wind-down. So it was really surreal. Um, mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's people involved, right, and people you care about that you've worked with or coworkers, mm -hmm. and not being able to... Um, not being able to sort of give them an idea of, yes, you know, you'll have a job for X amount of years or no, you know, you should start looking now. Um, it really came down to sort of everyone's individual comfort with um, just sort of the economic instability of it all. 
Um, and, and it was a big leap of faith. I'm just really, um, I, I'm really impressed that people stayed and, um, it really does show the dedication to, to CIRM and to its mission. Yeah. Uh, so this is a question for both of you. I mean, you talked about this, Melissa, but we'll start with Maria. Um, so election night comes and there's no result. And then the next day and the next and the next, and it seemed like there was this steady drip of votes going to the no side. How are you feeling during all of that? No, actually, uh, election night is really about keeping calm. Um, and so you get a large enough data set to be able to sort of predict an outcome. And the campaign had um, an amazing polling team. Um, and they are well regarded in the industry and they have a great track record with statewide elections. So I just kept my fingers crossed that they'd gotten this one right as well. And they did. So that's great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and luckily, thank you. Luckily, we did. But uh, even our extended team, you know, the, the polling group that, that we were working with and then our, our very small but mighty internal campaign team, we met several times a day between election day and when the election was finally called. And not only that, um, given my role on the campaign, I had an entire coalition to keep informed similar to Maria needing to keep a staff at CIRM informed and calm, right? I needed to keep an entire coalition informed. And for me, the way that I was feeling was if it didn't pass, just terrible for the patients, the patients and the patient advocates that worked so hard to get it passed. It, the same thing in 2004, if these initiatives really get passed because of a coalition of patients and patient advocates and patient advocacy organizations. Plus, you know, uh, a, a large group of scientists as well that were very helpful, um, people from industry, but it really is the patients that get to get these, that got these two initiatives passed. And now, because the field has evolved so much since, since we first got Prop 71 passed in 2004, in, in a lot of ways with CIRM's help, right at the center of funding, Senso Research and Regenerative Medicine is one of the biggest um, epicenters in, in the world uh, for such research. Um, we're talking about patients that are actually in clinical trials or are waiting to participate in clinical trials that are coming up. And we were faced with the prospect if this funding did not come through, if Prop 14 did not pass, that a large number of those trials may be uh, stopped or just never started. Um, and that was not a, a good feeling. Uh, it was a huge relief when we won. And it was one of those times when it wasn't just about, oh, we won, we did this work and we did well and we won. It was, phew, on behalf of the patients that this research can uh, bring so much to and for um, to improve their lives and, and in, in some cases save their lives. And I'm so excited about the possibilities of the next 15 years, having been around for the first 15 or at the beginning of it anyway, um, really excited about the possibilities and, and would have been very, very sad if we didn't get to see uh, those next 15 years with this funding in place from CERM. Amen to that. Um, so what happens with Americans for Cures now? Great question. So right now we are working on an archive of Prop 71 and Prop 14 and the work that Americans for Cures did in between. Um, and that archive, it's become 
a very large body of work and it will reside at the Stanford Library and we're we're almost done with it. Um, so that's the one of the major projects that Americans for Cures is working on right now. And of course, maintaining our, our advocacy on behalf of stem cell research and regenerative medicine in, in support of patients and patient advocates. Um, and then also looking perhaps for, for what's next. What is the next iteration of Americans for Cures? Because when I came back to Americans for Cures after having, you know, I left, I was at CIRM for the first six and a half years, left there, I came back to Americans for Cures, a nonprofit I had funded during Prop 71 so that some of us from the campaign could work somewhere while we helped set up CIRM before we could transition to working at CIRM. Um, and, but I came back because of the need to get another initiative passed to refund CIRM, to renew the funds for CIRM. So right now we've got a big project and then we need to um, uh, do our new strategic plan just like CIRM is. So Maria, it's been a year. Um, a lot's <laughs> happened in this last year. Um, how, how do you feel about the direction CIRM's going and, and what, looks the, what does the future look like? Um, I think it's amazing what uh, the last year has been able to sort of um, bring um, insofar as CIRM and, uh, and where we are. So we've hired 16 new people, which is a feat in and of itself. Um, and in addition to that, we have 13 new board members. So between 16 new hires and 13 new board members in that year, um, there's been a lot of activity in just getting things restarted and, and people um, trained in, um, in their different functions to be able to carry out uh, the work that's before, before us. So all of our programs are back up and running at full steam. The board's approved $250 million in funding. Um, that's a total of 56 new awards, which is amazing. Um, we're about to deliver a strategic plan that will really set us up to deliver on the promises of Prop 14. We've enrolled an additional 360 new patients into clinical trials that either we fund or are being carried out in the alpha clinics. That's amazing. I know I'm leaving things out, but those are the things that like just stand out so much in, in my mind. And that's just, those are just the things that like we report out on that we think, you know, the, the public wants to hear about and, and, and would, would know about. And there's just, there's other little things internally. Like we, we've been able to keep everything going um, virtually for this whole time. And that in and of itself is just amazing. Um, our patient advocacy is back up and running. I don't know if everybody knows Kevin, but that is, um, that will be your focus moving forward. And, and that's amazing that we now have just, you are dedicated to that and bringing patient advocates in and patients into the fold, um, in a way that perhaps we weren't able to do before. Um, that's just a that. renewed focus. <laughs> <laughs> so with all these new members on staff and 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 the board now got even larger, you can just kick back for a while, right? Absolutely. I've got. I mean, I've got nothing to do, so that's what I'm going to be doing. Mm -hmm. Just gonna just have a margarita. Okay, mm -hmm. that sounds good. <laughs> uh, so, Melissa, last question: You go swimming in San Francisco Bay without a wetsuit? Just, <laughs> yes. just how crazy are you? Oh, totally crazy. And I'm crazy about doing it. I, I can't wait to get back out there. I haven't actually been in the water for a while, but the good news for me is that I really am a winter swimmer. I love swimming in the bay even more 
during the winter than at other times during the year because the water is so cold that it's a challenge every time just to get in. And then that feeling of settling into 50, 51, 52, maybe 55 degree water and calming down after the first 20 or 30 seconds and being able to be in for a while, it, there, there's nothing more invigorating than getting into that water and swimming around for a while. And it's such a beautiful place too. <laughs> yeah, so I think with, with the question, Come with just, me. just how crazy, I think really crazy. Um, <laughs> well, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank our guests, the fabulous Maria Bonneville and Melissa King for taking the time to be with us and making this such an enjoyable show. And I want to thank you at home, in the car, the shower, or wherever you listen to podcasts <laughs> for tuning in. And we look forward to seeing you next time on Talking About Regeneration. Till then, goodbye <laughs> and stay well. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin.